Welcome to NAB Digital Next. I'm Brad Carr from NAB's digital data and analytics team. And today we're going to talk about the intersection of security and compliance amidst a world of ubiquitous social media, new cybersecurity threats, and the questions of how we adapt compliance for the work from home and hybrid worlds. Our guest is Catherine Parry. Catherine is the founder and CEO of DeepView, which in my time internationally at the IF was one of the most fascinating, and I'd also say timely new companies that I came across in terms of innovative solutions to new and emerging threats. Fittingly, with business travel resuming, Catherine is on the road from London and today joining us from Oslo. We're gonna take in her global perspective and then a little bit later in the episode, I'm gonna pick up the discussion with NAB's Chief Security Officer, Sandro Buccaneri. And Sandro will help me add an Australian perspective or an Australian context to Catherine's insights. But firstly, Catherine, it's great to speak with you again. Thanks for joining us and welcome to NAB Digital Next. Hi, Brad, thank you for having me. Catherine, um, you can do much better than my introduction. Can you tell us about DeepView and what your business focuses on? Absolutely. Um, so DeepView is a single platform for multi-social media risk. Uh, we archive and monitor chat systems and then analyze and alert to visual data leaks. I can go on and tell you much more, but I don't want to spoil your question. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll, we'll, I'll give you the chance to, to do more of that. And, and maybe we could start with what I thought was a really fascinating story that you told me back in, in late 2020. Um, we were talking about social media security and you were explaining how hackers can uncover the clues they need via social media. For instance, the, the many hundreds of thousands, I think millions of Instagram photographs that had the hashtag of work from home at the time. Absolutely. So it was very interesting in the um, early days of lockdown. So in the Western world, that was around March 2020 onwards. What we saw was this massive rise in, as you say, hashtag work from home. Um, it, it was hitting 50,000 posts a day on Instagram alone. Um, and that's not accounting for LinkedIn posts. And what tended to happen was individuals were so Obviously, it was hard being at home. It was a complete change from being in the office, much less social contact. And so people, I think, were sharing social contact via social media. And the most frequent little photo we'd see is little Johnny in front of dad's trading terminal or whatever, with a sort of caption, future trader in the making. Now, of course, lovely and wonderful to see, but the consequences of the items in that photo are the, are the things to be mindful of. And part of the reason we get so concerned about photos like that, and we help firms manage them and, and, and bring them down, is because social engineers use these photos to gain access into the organization. So the most typical route we see is a social engineer picking up the phone. And it's a lady called Rachel Toback, who is a white hat hacker, who is fascinating on all of this and can go into a lot more detail. Um, but anyway, she talks about the social engineer calling up the individual. Um, and now see it could be back at their desk or it may be on their mobile. They often, the social engineer gets the mobile from maybe a business card sitting in the photo that's been put on Instagram. Calling from the Bank of Oslo's IT team, I can see that you've got Excel or you've got our intranet plus two on your computer screen. That means that you've got um, a system that's now six months out of date, so you're not getting the latest documents. I'm going to send you an email link. 
jump on it. I'll access your system and update the entire platform for you so that you can get the latest documents. Wow. Often people get the phone call from the IT team and they're like, yeah, whatever, just do your thing and work cool, right? Because they're assuming the fact that the person knows their phone number, which of course the person has got from the business card sitting on the desk, or that they can guess the email address, again, usually sitting on a business card or in the computer screen that's behind little Johnny or whoever the kid is. Um, and so, so at that very point, the social engineer sends the email, the email arrives in the individual's inbox, the individual clicks on the link, and you can imagine, I mean, that's where you see ransomware getting into entire systems. This is, I mean, there are many more stories and there are many more routes to entry, but it, that's the, that's one of the clearest. That's say. a pretty sophisticated one too. And like, I recall you also telling the story of maybe a more simplistic way of how you, you guess or crack pa- um, passwords, things like the work from home photos where the calendar was on the wall in the background, or even just in your Zoom screen in a meeting that the calendar's in the background with the kid's birth date circled. Um, things that are in the, you know, the, the video background whilst we were suddenly all at home revealing different things about our personal lives to our colleagues, to our clients, that suddenly these things came into play and were giving the clues for the hackers, giving them the clues that they needed. Absolutely, Brad, you've, you've got it. So it's really important. And we um, additionally, as a result of exactly your point, built a real-time alert system. So you can get a, hello, there's something in the background that could be a risk whilst people are on Zoom calls and Microsoft Teams or whatever it might be. So is this a reminder that for all of the investments we might make in security, in, in tightening the defences around the front door, that for all of that, so much really relies on people. Uh, it relies on people being vigilant and, or, or alternatively their susceptibility to, to being misled. And at Deepview, you know, how and where do you see the opportunities for us in, in getting better at that? It's such a good question. I think, um, well, I know... Yeah, it is people. Um, And often it's, well, I'd say in 99% of the cases we see, if not 100%, it is inadvertence. Much of this data leakage is never intentional. It's done with the momentum and energy of the the person's maybe love for the business or whatever. And so whilst there's obviously training that can be put in place, there's also a whole realm of... Um, technology that can support the user's behavior because there are so many components that are now happening it's very difficult for people to be mindful of every single part of their lives especially now we have hybrid working you've often got two environments minimum that you're working from and managing the data leakage in all of those is not it's not easy so so yes yeah, so we do real-time alerts if there's something in the background on a Zoom call or on a Microsoft team call, we can also do analysis of public. We only ever do public social media posts. So the ones that the social hackers, social engineers can use to gain entry into organizations. Um, and really it's all about, we, we just want to help the industry. We can see where many of the big banks are having thousands, if not tens of thousands, mm. um, hacks a day. Um, and they can be smaller ones, they can be significant ones. And that that number will just carry on rising. Um, and it's because people are getting better and better and better at it. 
And so to help the industry, it's about providing the technology that supports the security of the organization whilst protecting the res- and respecting the employee's privacy. For us, that's very important. It's so true that, that so much of what we do in, in adopting technological solutions needs to be tied to that human element um, and that our best defences in this case are, are very much that combination of innovative technology but in the hands of humans who can practice it and can appreciate it. I was wondering, can we pivot a little bit to another core part of DeepFuse business? And that's where you've been using techniques such as artificial intelligence about helping to record and archive chat messaging um, from across different devices and across different channels. And I think this just became so critical as a means of ensuring that we were able to deliver continuity of service whilst also being able to maintain the level of conduct monitoring um, for dealing rooms, for instance, as we went through that that shift to work from home. Um, really a critical enabler for, for how the economy was able to carry on as the pandemic hit. I was wondering if you can tell, tell us a bit about how that transition played out, firstly, in, in 2020. What's up? So we've got, I've obviously given you the numbers for Instagram work from home posts. We've got WhatsApp rose by 40% in use in the first three months of lockdown. Again, Western lockdown. So let's say March onwards. Um, And as you say, that was because whether it was deal room, buy side, sell side, everybody wanted to make sure that they were in touch and often the internal systems that had been built for working in the office were just catching up. People were still learning, chatting on Microsoft Teams, chatting on however they may now organize it. Um, And of course, the benefit of something like WhatsApp is it enables a very easy flow of communication. There's a natural way of talking on WhatsApp that Mm. is so much more relaxed and easy than an email. And we're really seeing I think lockdown I've been saying for a while now I believe that social media will be to email what email was to fax and I I really do see email becoming more and more like fax we're going to see the lawyers still using it and needing it and there'll be a you know the sort of the levels that will still need it as as the emergence of as a sort of fax began to die away um and so really now it's now it's a case of managing the security around these around these chat systems. I mean, that's a, a great look into to the way in which society is evolving and, and our practices, work practices, but I think you know, humans generally in the way that we've gone through through with the pandemic and having to find adjust to new norms. Your your focus on WhatsApp, I think, is particularly pertinent. When we look at in the US, there's been, I think, a few interesting court cases now and, and cases with the SEC where yeah, if I understood it correctly, the the banks had been monitoring their employees' use of of WhatsApp, um, where particular communications that that maybe shouldn't have been there under bank policy, that there was nothing against the letter of the law, but it was against bank policy and the way in which the banks were monitoring that. I was wondering if you can tell us a bit about what what's come out of those cases or, or what we learned from that. Yeah, so. Obviously, there's one big bank that got fined um, near $200 million in December last year by the CFTC and SEC for unrecorded social media. And as you say, to your, to your point, Brad, many of these firms um, used, used often a tool like WhatsApp for business. 
and they may use a version of that. But what they were trying to prevent was WhatsApp on personal and BYOD devices. But of course, naturally, given relationships, better relationships are likely to be on BYOD and personal devices. So mm. people are gravitating towards that use. And to that point, um, many of the firms were nervous about recording BYOD WhatsApp communications because they didn't know how to respect the privacy of the employees while setting up the recording. Um, now, so one of, one of our solutions is actually where the user can select the chats that are work. They sign an attestation. It's their responsibility to select the right chats, which meets all the regulatory requirements, whether it's the SEC, CFTC, FCA in the UK under the CISC rules, the conversion of NIFID. So it's very it's there are ways forward, but absolutely to your point, it was a breach of policy, but it was also this other this other chat system, i.e. the BYD personal devices that hadn't really been considered and as you uh, and one one bank find but also multiple banks being investigated um, currently as we know so this really is an area that um, the Gary Gensler has got a very focused um, goal as we can all clearly see uh, under Biden and I, and it seems that coming out of COVID and hybrid working, this is going to be a real um, area of energy, I'd say, probably for the regulators, because they they feel it's such an open uh, market for fire, yeah, in terms of opportunity um, in tidying up the industry. It does feel like for, for Gary Gensler and the SEC that this is almost, you know, priority number two after the, uh, the focus that he has on investor protection for crypto at the moment, that this is, you know, perhaps the next... Uh, biggest ticket item around. We talked here a bit about the the transition to work from home and and what was catalyzed in in that time. Um, but of course, now we go to perhaps a new working environment where it's hybrid. Um, it's not the scenario that everybody is is home all of the time as it was for a lot of 2020. We now have people in different places, people on different new work patterns where they're in and out of of offices and homes at different stages. And I was just sort of wondering, you know, we, as we go through this human adaptation and the, and the patterns that it's changed in terms of the, the preferred means of communication and the devices, like, do you see particular nuances, perhaps, or new challenges that are emerging with this next phase of adapting to hybrid and, you know, perhaps things that you've seen and learnt in the last year or two um, as we start to move into that world? I think everything that we've, we've begun to see as, um, a possible risk just feels like it's coming to the fore. Someone turned around to me last Thursday and said, well, you know, you were talking five years ago about everyone using WhatsApp for work. Well, it seems to have happened. And we had a laugh because five years ago, everyone was sort of saying that's a nuts idea. People won't use WhatsApp for work. You know, and, it's, and, and so in the same way, um, it was the photo video component very clearly we all everybody would say no one will take a photo and put it on a public public social media account with any confidential detail and and of course what are we seeing now vast amounts of information in photos and videos and so really i think it's it's not a case of we're not going to see huge um many other issues what we are going to see is a faster pace of the current issues we've got needing to be managed because 
more people are taking photos, more people are, whilst people are getting better and becoming more aware because conversations like this, Brad, are happening and are public. So thank you to you and um, NAB for, for having me and, and making this public so people do understand and we can help them all. But ultimately, social media channels, whether it's TikTok or Discord or however, are all driving a behavior pattern in us as humans that is how can we make you more addicted to our platform mm. right take photos we like them that gives you a serotonin boost so that brings you back to the platform there's this constant and i was reading a fascinating article about the serotonin boost via social media versus a normal communication with a human and it is and it's an exceptional boost when you start getting all these likes hence why we do it and these platforms know it so there's that risk that we're also looking at. We've obviously seen from the crypto side, um, the, many of the exchanges being falsified. And I think the most recent loss was a 600 million loss where um, as, when an exchange was uh, being falsified on Discord and a hedge fund was got a message along the lines of your boss wants to buy X number of crypto at this, uh, of Bitcoin at this, particular moment because the individual had been on the social media account of the uh, boss so to speak he could see that the boss's diary says taking kids to school so he could say at the moment he's taking his son to school so he can't get on it he's asked me to get in front of you and we're seeing a lot of time pressure coming over on these chat channels so it's another thing that we've been asked to do is sentiment analysis for time pressure so there's red flags to communication like that just to try and help slow it down. Really, everything we need to just try and do is just to help slow it down. So the sort of human decision-making and controls occur to help manage the risk. And, and what you described there about the, the urgency of time pressure and about those red flags is, is all very consistent with the way that banks, including ours, have, I think, traditionally approached the way that we've trained a lot of our staff around how to, how to detect and combat money laundering and the like. It's just adapting that and modernising that with the new form of threats that we're receiving that um, is, is what I really appreciate, the, the colour that you're giving us. Um, Catherine, I, I framed a lot of our discussion here, I think, a bit in the defensive in terms of, of how we're trying to combat cyber threats or how we're trying to prevent misconduct. But perhaps if we can, can pivot a little bit more to the positive, and I, I noticed um, on social media, following you on LinkedIn, you spoke you. at the House of Commons recently. Uh, and you spoke about the role of compliance as an enabler for better data management within firms. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the opportunities you see and and how this might help us to become better and smarter in what we do. It's a big topic. <laughs> but really, I think compliance and security um, have always probably needed to go hand in hand, but I don't think... Uh, the industry has ever required it to such an urgency as we're seeing today. Um, We haven't, I don't believe, seen the connection between data leakage that the security team would manage now falling into the SEC's requirements for cybersecurity in the way that we are seeing today, to your point that Gary Gensler's number one target is is um, regulation around crypto. And with that comes a lot of this cybersecurity uh, requirements that we see coming out of the SEC. 
Um, and so the, I think the opportunities are good collaboration, coordination, and um, we are, we're very much beginning to see the security teams supporting the compliance teams and vice versa. So compliance see many burning bushes all the time at the moment. The important thing is supporting them through that and helping show where the technology can enable the management of compliance and maybe coming from the security perspective, but to help them see the woods for the trees. Because I think it's, especially with hybrid working, there's so many different burning bushes that compliance need to look at. It's trying to figure out what to do and what's easy. And one of our key focuses is to make sure that all our technology can be plugged in in a matter of days. It doesn't need to fit into legacy IT systems. So it doesn't cause huge issues for the IT team. It's literally, we feed into a data lake. We have an, IP, an API feed. We can even do by email for some, for some that's a request. And so really making sure that the user is onboarding. So for our WhatsApp recording, for example, it's three minutes for the user to onboard it. That's it. Um, and for the firm, it's simple and quick. And that's really something that I think we're going to have to see a lot more changeover in the industry. Um, because at times it can be very difficult to get all the compliance platforms and so on up to speed because of the legacy IT issues that we've got in so many of the firms. Catherine, I thought just lastly, uh, when we've spoken previously, um, you've been in California, where I know you spent a lot of time in the last couple of years before you've um, now uh, now back in, in the UK or, or today in Norway. Um, as you look across the, the client base that you've dealt with across you know, much of the world, just interested in any reflections you have in terms of the operational readiness that you see, whether there's any particular geographical distinctions in, in that sort of level of readiness and and perhaps, you know, how how we in financial services are doing compared to other industries, perhaps? It's a very, I mean, data leakage um, is a very, so, I mean, the one that comes up in many discussions I have is comparing financial services to, to hospitals and doctors often sharing patient records over WhatsApp with colleagues. But actually often if you speak to a patient, no one really cares because the more doctors they have looking at their x-rays, they're, they're happier. So it's, it's that's fine. Um, however, from a data leakage management perspective, it's obviously a whole new ball game and something that we're very mindful of. So it, in terms of um, every industry has got its own unique aspect of this. Um, I'd say the financial services industry can often be so much more complex because of the level of regulation and the complexity across the board with multiple regulators and so on. So there is um, a far, it's a far more onerous task for a bank to become compliant and security focused versus many of the other industries that we see. Um, I say bank or asset manager, or I mean, it covers the entire remit, right? Um, I think the photo video analysis has been, is coming now forward. People are really realizing the issue of these photos sitting on the public internet and the exposure it, it is giving the, their firm that they may work for um, and the weakness in the security. I think WhatsApp has been, people have been more mindful of it, but 
as you said earlier, it was a case initially of, well, we've got a policy that says people can't use WhatsApp, so they shouldn't. And actually, I think now it's, we're, we're kind of of the perspective that people will use what they want to use. They're going to try and do their job to the best of their ability. They've got KPIs to meet. They've got bonuses to hit. If they want to use WhatsApp, they're going to use WhatsApp. And they'd rather get wrapped over knuckles than they would lose a deal. And so I think it's all about now thinking ahead, particularly in the financial services space. And we do see the East Coast of America, New York and so on, tends to be very forward looking in terms of solutions and enabling their people to use the technology that can help them. Um, But then you've also got the fascinating phenomenon that WhatsApp and WeChat are very popular in Asia. Obviously, WhatsApp's very popular in Europe and less so in the US. But if they've got cross um, international clients, it's becoming more popular. And it, it always amazes me how many of my American friends still use text message. And, so they, and we have a whole discussion about the features and you're thinking, no. So and it's a, it's a different balance. So ultimately whether it's it's managing and meshing the solutions to the way that the cultures work and how the teams need to be operating efficiently. That's a great snapshot there from Catherine, looking at the key security and compliance issues and trends as they're happening across the major Northern Hemisphere economies. One of the things we like to do here on NAB Digital Next is to take those global insights and look at them from our own local context for that, I'm joined today by NAB's Chief Security Officer, Sandro Bucaneri. Sandro, welcome. And can I start by asking what most stood out for you in Catherine's insights? Hey, Brad. Um, I think one of the things that definitely stood, stood out for me is the social engineering aspect. Um, people keep forgetting that social engineering happens all the time, and that's how most people get scammed and uh, typically relates to lack of education or awareness. But I think the social engineering aspect definitely stood out for me. Yeah, I was really struck by that. Uh, some really interesting scenarios that she raised, particularly that example of a criminal seizing on the clues or or contact details shown in a photo, that that's the basis for impersonating a help desk operator. It kind of underlines that point, I think, that so much of cyber defence is human and a reiteration of the point about tech and humanity that Neil Cross gave us more broadly on, on episode one. This is not just about code, it's about educating and upskilling people. Um, can I get you to touch a bit more on that and what we're doing at NAB, both for ourselves and for our customers? Yeah, sure. No, I think that is a great point. I think the biggest the biggest problem with security is in the tools or the processes that we have. It's it's people, it's us. You know, we are the weakest link in the chain. Um, but, but, but you can educate yourself and, and make sure that you're enabling things like you know, multi-factor authentication or two-factor, as it's more commonly known as. Uh, and what we're doing is, is trying to educate as, as much as our customer base as possible. We do webinars. Uh, we have our security hub that's available to our customers around how to better protect yourself online, et cetera. And I always use this example, and I know my wife hates it, um, but I got, a, I got a message from when I was traveling somewhere and uh, she said, oh, um, you'll, be, you'll be interested to know that I just got um, somebody tried to access my Facebook account. So I said, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. I said, did you click on any links or anything? No, 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 nothing like that. But somebody tried to access it. So I went into the Facebook uh, app, uh, reviewed my settings, and I made I saw that two-factor authentication was not enabled, and I enabled it. And my response back to her, which I then posted back on social media, was, oh, my life's work is done uh, because she's actually enabled uh, two-factor authentication, and she's actually been listening to me ramble on for the best part of well, uh, 19 years of marriage. So 
Um, so yeah, no, I thought that was pretty good. But I think you know, your point that you raise about education and keeping up to date, you do it all the time. When you cross the street, uh, you look both ways. Uh, if you're in any foreign country uh, that you have never been to and you're walking down the street and you see two you know, individuals walking towards you, you, you instinctively cross over because you're not sure what their intentions are. Uh, if you know a hotel room, now that we can go back to travel, you lock the hotel room door at night when you go and sleep. Those things are there inherently because you're caring about your personal physical safety. It's no different than when you're online. So that education and awareness piece is exceptionally important you know, to protect yourself and, and, your, and your accounts. And I guess that's about then also adapting that education and some of our behavioral defenses for the circumstances that are changing with us. I thought it was a really interesting notion Catherine gave us that, as she put it, social media will become to email what email is to fax. And I'm curious as to what you thought of that and, and the extent to which that, you know, how, how that raises of how we make, it, make sure our security is sufficiently agile and adaptive as those behavioral trends and behavior changes sort of emerge. Yeah, as technology evolves, so does our defenses and, and how we protect ourselves, uh, et cetera. So I think that uh, that is a very good statement. Uh, my kids don't communicate with me with a phone. They don't phone me uh, to that. To them, that's ancient. They would rather send me a message on Instagram or TikTok. No, I do not have a TikTok account, but they try. They keep trying to get me on, but they'll send me messages that way. So again, the, and, and the perpetrators, the bad guys will try and you know, use those mechanisms to do exactly the same thing. A couple of years ago, my wife sent me this thing again. I'll use my wife as an example. She sent me this thing on Facebook saying, um, oh, here's these 10 questions that we had. It's like, no, who was your first girlfriend? And what's your favorite color? And which high school did you go to? And all these things. And we're going to compare notes with, the other, with my other girlfriends. I said, that's like a social engineer's dream. Because all that pieces of information, you're probably using you know, your color and your first street you grew up on, et cetera, as you part of your password and that's exactly what social engineers do that's why the the, the social media environment is so you know, it's great it, it, it uh, helps you connect with people that you haven't connected with with forever but it's also a, it's a massive area of concern if you're not careful as to how you better protect yourself yeah and that was the, the serotonin boost that Catherine talked about that people get from social media uh, and to the extent to which that perhaps overrides the sensible parts of our brains and uh, and makes us more vulnerable um, one other sense I take, Sandro, is that our economy and our, our society needs us to have a safe and adaptive ecosystem and that no one firm is going to be able to deliver that all on their own. And I think this is a, a really important important point that you've been stressing elsewhere recently, that cybersecurity is a team game. No, exactly. Uh, and I always talk about uh, being, a, uh, being a team sport. And for my sins, I'm a Manchester United fan. Um, and I know my Liverpool colleagues will always rile me for this. And I know in, in Australia, when I talk about football, that people think of oh, Melbourne Demons and, and in Collingwood and all those things. But, but it is a team sport. And just like you have your defenders and your attackers, your goalkeepers, et cetera. Um, so too, you need to have different parts of the organization working in harmony. I cannot protect the organization alone. And that goes to our customers and it goes to our partners that we, we, we have. And, and we have to share information or intelligence so that we can better protect ourselves. So something that may happen to us may be happening a little bit differently uh, to our, our peer banks uh, or our, our peer uh, partners. And while sharing that information, we can then see, oh, these are the type of attackers, et cetera. Oh, these are the type of techniques the attackers are using. 
um, to essentially better defend, uh, um, to get into our networks, to get into our accounts. And if we all know well, what they are trying to do, we can better defend against it. So that's why I always say no, cybersecurity or security in general is a team sport. Well, Sandro, thank you. And of course, our thanks to our special guest, Catherine Parry of Deepview. If I can indulge in a quick bit of NAB cross-promotion, our NAB security podcast series has gone into a lot of these core security issues in greater depth. And you can find nine episodes of that very specialist series on the NAB News website, looking deeper into ransomware, identity takeover, and much more. And ahead here on this channel, on NAB Digital Next, we're going to look at the major tech platforms, including the observed experiences in China and lessons for elsewhere, speaking with Professor Doug Arner of Hong Kong University. We're also going to look at the successful public-private digital identity ecosystem in Canada with the president of their Digital Identity Council, Joni Brennan. So stay tuned for much more on the latest in digitalisation. I'm Brad Kahn. Thanks for joining us on Digital Next. <laughs>